Welcome to the next episode of P5 Protocols with Dr. Nancy O'Hara, who fortunately is based in Wilton, Connecticut, right near my home. She is a traditionally trained pediatric doctor who is also the child of two doctors, but her approach is anything but traditional. She started her career as a teacher before attending the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. Of note, she currently is treating two of my sons who have chronic Lyme. As I recently started in the last few transcripts, I bold and italicize background information, and I bold and underline treatment-related information. Dr. O'Hara was so clear-thinking and methodical that most of the transcript is marked up. In other words, for those who are listening, this is a very dense interview. The focus is on pediatric neurological disorders from ADHD to Lyme disease symptoms to autism. I do not think you will find a more scientifically evidence-based doctor in the world. And as those who are listening to this and past podcasts will notice a common theme as Dr. O'Hara pivoted from the pure traditional medical world to looking for every edge she could get to help her patients. Her mentors are some of the best medical doctors and researchers in the world, but she has long reached an age and stage where she is materially contributing and perhaps teaching her mentors a few things. Ever curious, I think you'll enjoy listening to Dr. O'Hara lay out an approach and framework for treating children with various neurological disorders. Remember that at the end of this transcript are links to resources. It is long, so let's get started. So I am sitting here for the next edition of P5 Protocols with Dr. Nancy O'Hara from the Center for Integrative Health in Wilton, Connecticut. And I first met Dr. O'Hara back uh, early midwinter when uh, the first of my two boys um, who had had some health issues that had gone undiagnosed for very long periods of time uh, and she was the first one to figure it out. Now, granted, we had spent several years on a wait list um, because she is popular. And as we've found since for good reason. Um, but I will let Dr. O'Hara in one sec uh, talk about uh, her areas of specialty and background. But um, we are here because uh, to our knowledge and, and my boys both wound up with Lyme disease and she was the first one to figure it out. Uh, and give us a treatment protocol, uh, which we are still in the middle of, and it's a long-term thing, but seems to be working quite well, that it was time, especially in the state of Connecticut, to be after things like Lyme and other disorders that seem to be very prevalent in this area. So with that, Dr. O'Hara, I want to thank you for taking the time for being here. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, Fred is lying here on the floor. Hopefully, if we hear anyone barking, Fred is a awesome dog that is always here and always calm. Um, and uh, with Fred asleep, we're not going to give him a mic, but um, <laughs> I would love it if you would you know, give your background. Uh, we share the same alma mater, although I did not go to med school. Um, but if you could kind of go back and give your background and it'd be good to. Sure. I uh, first come from a very traditional medical family. Both of my parents are family practitioners. Uh, I went to undergrad at Bryn Mawr and then went on to medical school at University of Pennsylvania and got a master's in public health at University of Pittsburgh. Uh, I started my career before medical school as a teacher of children with autism. 
And I realized I was a lousy teacher. So that's why I took the easier road and went to medical school. And I mean that honestly for all the teachers out there. Uh, and, but in my private practice, after a, a fellowship in general pediatrics, I had a lot of children with autism. And, uh, as such, um, I was seeing a lot of families in a lot of distress. Had one little boy in particular, uh, that just struck me. He was a little boy at age four who had no speech. Um, was autistic, but also had a tremendous amount of allergies, asthma, uh, eczema, and was on that typical toddler white diet. Uh, and uh, I had tried for a couple of years to get his mom to get him on a healthier diet, really for his asthma and his allergies, but she couldn't. She was a full-time working mom, really couldn't do it. This particular time when he was four, they went away on vacation, and uh, he got a viral illness, called our office. The nurse said, take him off all dairy because it's making the diarrhea worse. She took him off dairy and he started talking. She called me and I, she said, I'm spending time with him. I've taken time off of work. I'm working with him full time. And he started talking. I said, keep doing what you're doing. No question. Came back, put him back on milk because he got over his illness. He stopped talking. She called me. I said, well, it's the flight. It's the transition. It's the this and that, that we always said. Thankfully, she didn't believe me. And she took him off milk again. He started talking. She did this cycle three or four times and then found Sid Baker, who is my mentor. And uh, she came back to me and she said, you got to look at this. And I thought, diet affecting autism, this is crazy. There, there's no way. But at the time, I was going through five years of infertility and had been very disillusioned by what the medical community still had to offer me. So I thought, well, I'll go to sit as a patient. And that changed my life. And so I went from being a typical pediatrician, partner in a very thriving practice, to starting my own integrative practice about 20 years ago. And, and so, and you went to Penn Medicine, right? Correct. And so, and, and then you got your master's? Or, Correct. And then you got- During residency, chief residency and fellowship. Wow. Okay. And then you, so you go to sit as a patient and that's a little over 20 years ago. Yeah. And, um, and what, what did he do uh, either for you or what did you just kind of the parameters? Cause I know it's still, you're so close to him because that's how I went back to him uh, after 20 years ago, thinking he was out of practice. Yeah. Um, Sid and I are very close and it's nice that, that I can teach him a few things these days, <laughs> not just the reverse, but uh, uh, Sid did what I do now with patients, which was look at all of me and look at the things that I needed to get more of that I wasn't getting and looked at the things I needed to get rid of that I had too much of. So one was I had too much yeast. I was overloaded with yeast and needed to get rid of that. I also wasn't getting the amount of minerals, partly because I was pretty constipated. Didn't realize that going a couple of times a week wasn't, you know, good enough. Um, and uh, so he helped me to detoxify in several different ways, treated my yeast. Um, I also did a couple, what some people might call out there therapies or alternative therapies like craniosacral and acupuncture. And within a few months of doing all of that, I, uh, was pregnant for the first time. So. I love that. 
I, I actually saw a woman years ago, Mind Body, back in 97. Actually, I was told about the person by someone I met at Jeff Bland's conference, which that year was in Aspen of 97. And because um, I had had gut problems and she said, oh, you know, you, you, you have to meet Naravi Payne. And Naravi was this phenomenal therapist. Her specialty was fertility. Yeah. And she had several books out. She just passed away a few years ago. She was well in her 80s. Um, but she, she, Kenny Loggins, so she, you know, there's, I think, I think he dedicated or something, his CD to her, his original one, which we used mm. for our kids. Um, but, uh, um, you know, it's, there's, there's that mind body stress thing. And then there's all that physical, um, can, can you kind of talk about the different, uh, maybe talk about your protocols and, and how you treat patients and, um, you know, we came in, we filled out a very extended questionnaire. We um, went over, had blood work, had other things done, and maybe talk about, um, maybe a little bit about the spectrum of from, I, I use that term loosely, on uh, from autism to everything else that you, that, that you see in your practice and you specialize in. Right. Well, first of all, I started my practice with children with neurodevelopmental problems, autism and other neurodevelopmental issues. And I think those children are our canaries. Um, I grew up in West Virginia, and we used to send canaries into the coal mines. And if the canaries died, that meant the mine was too toxic. So I think our children with autism are, are those canaries. We're all exposed to all of these problems, but those children are the, the beacon that show us which way we all need to go in looking at uh, our, our innards, so to speak. Um, so one of the things Sid taught me was, if you listen, they will come. And I think that is something that is often lost in, in medicine. We don't listen. Our greatest teachers are our patients. And if we just listen, we would learn a tremendous amount. Um, the other piece of that is the, the root derivation of doctor is teacher. So I think it has to go the other way that our role as doctors is to be teachers. So much of what doctors in general do is that prescription pad medicine and do this because I tell you to, because I know best. If we would spend more time teaching, this is why, this is how, this is what may help you or your child, I think there, there might be not only a much better relationship, but also a much better understanding of some of the good and bad that may come from the treatment. So why I have a 30-page questionnaire is it helps me to get a flavor before I walk in the room of what a child may be going through. And my practice is entirely pediatric-based. I'm a pediatrician by training, so I, I don't see adults, mainly because I don't like them, but that's okay. Um, but uh, uh, So I have the parent or parents fill out this questionnaire to give me a sense, but it also gives them a sense of things that they may not have thought about. Um, there, there's several pages of just signs and symptoms. You know, when my child has autism, why am I thinking about how they're pooping? Or why am I thinking about whether they have hot or cold intolerance or how they're sleeping or, or you know, what relaxes them or, or works them up or whatever. But all of that helps them to see those things as part of the whole package. Um, and then I can take that information 
and together with the physical exam that I do that day, um, and some very um, tailored laboratory testing to sort of come up with a differential diagnosis. Now, no matter what the child comes in with, and you ask, what are the children I see? Well, in addition to autism and neurodevelopmental problems, I see children with PANS and PANDAS, which is pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with strep. And then in 2012, Sue Suido and all coined the term PANS, which is pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome. So, um, and then uh, children with Lyme, certainly, and other tick-borne illnesses. And then children with other neurodevelopmental problems. Because as I said, autism are those canaries. They're at one end of the spectrum. But in that spectrum is also all the kids with ADHD and learning differences and sensory processing or auditory processing, um, and also children with mental health problems, anxiety, depression, OCD. And they're all on that same spectrum where we have to look at what's going on, particularly in their immune systems. Is there inflammation? Is there autoimmune disease where the immune system is attacking self? Is there immunodeficiency where things are depleted? Or is it the whole spectrum and it's just dysregulated? We have to look at their metabolic systems. You know, are there mitochondria, the energy cells of the body working the way they should? Um, are there detoxification systems working the way they should? Um, we have to look at their gastrointestinal systems. I mean, you know, we talk about the gut as the second brain. I actually think it's the first brain and, and everything begins and, and ends there. So we have to look at how all of those systems may be impacting the child and ending that child up with that label. Cause that's all autism and learning differences and all that is. It's a label for the symptoms they have given what may be going on internally. Yes, that, that's what I was, you know, certain diagnoses are, are clinical diagnoses. And they're, they're, this looks like this because of these symptoms. But, um, you know, what, what I wrote was uh, before, and you were saying, you know, the doctors say do this, typically say do this because I know best. And really, when you when I first had this, uh, when I was diagnosed with colitis, and I kept pushing this doctor, I said, I think it's a bacterial infection. This is in '87, and and he said, you know, well, how do you know? And I said, well, because I have high school biology and common sense. And he <laughs> said, well, I don't have any proof. And then I went, ah. And so what it really is is not that I know best; it's that I don't know any better. And, and that's why in my, in my search for meeting with people like yourself, not, and really more for my children or for anyone else that I care about and being able to refer is that I, you know, I don't know about a doctor, but I know as a patient, um, I want to get every edge I can get. And, and that's what that, that's the area. So, so what, I, what I'd like you to maybe and to go into a little more details, you know, you, you, you listed all the things that you look at, but a, in, in terms of creating a little more of a linear path so people understand that these things don't happen overnight, um, you know, putting aside the couple of years it takes to get an appointment, <laughs> um, uh, um, someone comes in, you, you have them fill out a questionnaire before the first appointment, they send it in, you review it, you, 
you come in, you meet with them. And I, do you typically have, have blood work ordered ahead of time or? No. Okay. So you meet with them, you um, together digest what they filled out. You then order the blood work and then get, actually, yeah, I, I actually remember that we were waiting for the results. So you, you get the results and then you come in right? and you come up with the first course of treatment. Right. Well, and, and, uh, let me step back one, one moment because our, a group of doctors that I work with, we, we often get together and have think tanks. Um, that's where we think during the day and get tanked at night. No, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's actually a group of clinicians and researchers that get together to try to figure out what are the best ways to treat our most severely affected kids. And many years ago, um, one of the doctors asked, what are your most important biomarkers? And what he was asking, or what are the most important lab tests that you think are important to get on a child with autism? And my top 10 are history and physical exam. I use lab tests to prove, or sometimes disprove, because I'm not always right, um, but to prove what I think is happening from the history and physical exam. And so, yes, I don't get the testing before a patient comes in because these are children I'm seeing. And to have them do a blood test and then do a blood test again um, can often be not only daunting and anxiety provoking, but very difficult um, with little veins and little arms and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and also many of my children have tremendous anxiety over something like that. So I want to make sure we're getting exactly the right test for that child, because it's not a protocol of tests that I get on every child. There are some I'll get on everybody, but it's very um, set up by and decided by the history and physical exam. So that by far is the most important part. Then even before I get the test results back, which often can take four to six weeks, we will start at least four or five different things in that first month that just based on history and physical exam, I think are the biggest hits. Um, and why I do that, why that's important is because I do have a lot of families that come in here very skeptical either because they've seen 15 other practitioners first and nothing's worked or because they're new to integrative medicine and they are looking at it with a very scant eye or because they're afraid of trying something different than what their pediatrician or their parents are, are saying is the right thing to do or because there's a difference of opinion between the parents. So I, I try to find at least that one thing, if not three or four things that will make the most and the quickest difference for that child and do that before I even have any test results. And curious, or in most cases, are there three or four of the four or five things that are common almost every time? Um, if a child hasn't tried dietary changes, um, changing and removing something that they eat a lot of or crave is usually the biggest hit. The, the first child I saw in this practice was a child that joined me from my previous pediatric practice. And he was a young boy with ADHD. And we were about to put him on a stimulant medication for his symptoms. And they joined me in the practice and I finally took a diet history. And although he had a very good diet, he was eating at least nine bananas a day. 
And the parents thought they were doing great. You know, it's a fruit. It's not, what's wrong with bananas? And I said, take out the bananas. Just take out the bananas 100% for the next two weeks and let me know. And they came back two weeks later and the teachers were raving about whatever medication I had chosen to use because his ADHD symptoms were so much better. He was so much a clearer thinker. He was so much more organized. And all we had done was remove bananas. So kids crave that which they're most sensitive to. Or if I find like in the, the, the um, example of the first child I gave when I met Sid, you know, he was eating a ton of milk in all different forms, milk, ice cream, yogurt, cheese. And so just removing that made the biggest difference for him. So that's number one. Number two, if a child comes in with OCD, anxiety, uh, uh, severe um, self-injurious behaviors, aggression, um, influencing the glutathione pathway is one of the most important things. And glutathione is a molecule within all of our bodies that you'll hear a lot about in the next 10 years with regard to cardiovascular disease, cancer, but it's also true in all of us. It's that which we all need to detoxify our systems. So in its good form, glutathione sticks to and gets out of the system the, the toxins, the chemicals, the allergens, the, the, the germs even that we may have too much of. What Jill James, Dick Deeth, and others in research found is that our children with autism have a 71, 72% decrease in good glutathione and instead have oxidized or bad glutathione. So there I'm just playing, paying, playing the percentages. So especially in those children, children with autism or pans or pandas that have anxiety, trichotillomania, which is pulling their hair out, OCD, et cetera. Then I'll try something like N-acetylcysteine that raises glutathione, and that can be a big hitter. So those two things. Third would be in a child that comes in without language or without much language. Um, I will often try methyl B12 because in research again and in our practice, about 60% of children will improve their communication, at least non-verbally, if not verbally, just with methyl B12. So I feel very confident, you know, given a set of symptoms, given uh, a history in using one of those things and getting a, a good hit. And then I know I got them, so to speak, to be able to say, okay, now we're going to do something more difficult. In addition to removing milk, now we're going to remove all the gluten, or now we're going to go on a yeast-free diet, or now we're going to add this medication or whatever it may be. And, okay, so maybe one, so, so to me, this is a, a, you know, it's a, it's a path like anything that's not a straight line. Correct. Uh, how of your, how, how impactful are parents in the equation? I often say um, that I am the co-captain of their ship because they're on the front lines. They are dealing with whatever it is every day. And for me to come in and assume that I can take over is just wrong because without them instituting whatever I'm recommending, it won't happen. So the, the one of the ways it's very impactful is especially if the parents aren't on the same page. And that's one of the reasons I 
strongly recommend and almost require that both parents are here um, at the first visit. Um, because I think uh, I have been able at least 75% of the time, if not 90% of the time, to get the foot dragging parent into the conversation and getting them on board um, initially. And that's very, very important because, and in fact, we now have a preliminary questionnaire that one of the main things we're looking for is how much resistance will you get at home to changing diet, to adding supplements, to making lifestyle changes. And if they have a lot of resistance, you know, I, I say it, I may not be the right person for you. Because I don't want them, as I often say, to take out a second mortgage on me <laughs> and then them not to be able to even institute what I recommend because somebody else at home, their primary caregiver, for instance, if mom works, you know, that's there, won't do it. They need to work on those things before I can make a difference. And and it, so start with someone, let's start simpler. So, um, and maybe there's totally different, but, you know, Lyme, ADHD, lower, call it on the, on the broader life spectrum of, 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 of illnesses. What, what is the length of process? How, you know, how, like how often do people check in or, or what do you think is optimal? Not, not them checking in because they've, some people will check in every week if they could, but you know, what, what do you think the time needed and the, the, check-ins and alterations, what does that process look like? And how, how long is it, you know, what's that range of time? It may be a broad range, but what is that range right. of time until you think you've made? So the initial consultation usually takes at least two hours and up to four hours, depending on the complexity of the child and of the family. Then the next visit is usually four to six weeks later. And that's partly because uh, getting test results is partly a chance to get them started on a few things, read about a few things I may recommend, et cetera. Then the next visit after that, I use the first two visits to decide whether it's six weeks later or three months later, but usually no sooner than that and definitely no longer than that. And then I think after that, it really depends on how things are going, how many things a family can assimilate, um, how many problems I think they'll have as to how frequently. So once a month to once every three months is, is the range. And, you know, if a child's having a lot of problems in those first couple of visits, they have what we call Herxheimer's reactions or die-off reactions, where they have an initial negative reaction to the treatment I'm using for Lyme or yeast or, or some other type of infection. Then I may have to have more frequent appointments to walk them through that. Because otherwise, and I say this to people all the time, don't give up. If there's a negative, email me. And, and that email conversation may be once a week, um, once every other week, especially initially. Um, and I think that's very important too, to be available. Um, because especially with doing integrative interventions, um, many of our traditional colleagues will not understand it. And there's a great quote uh, that I will butcher now, but it's, you know, if we don't understand something, if we don't appreciate it, we'll poo-poo it 
and pretend like it doesn't exist. Um, and so part of what I need to do is help the parents to understand, okay, your child's negative reaction, that, that worsening of the anxiety is actually a good thing. That's that bad, good or good, bad, however you want to phrase it, that, that means that we're on the right track. Well, di diagnostic and yeah. the treatment is part of the diagnosis. Right. That's our N of one. Yes. That, that clinical trial that helps us to know. Um, but a lot of parents, when they get a negative reaction, they just want to stop whatever it is and get rid of that negative. And, and if they did that and they're not seeing you again for three months, you've lost three months of care. Mm -hmm. So I first have to explain how negative reactions are a good diagnostic tool and we may need to step back, but we need to proceed with that path to, to help your child to get better. And, and on, so let's, let's kind of jump over to the more serious cases, kids in the spectrum all the way, I would say all the way from low to high in the spectrum of, of autism. What, what, is the length of that process. I mean, I'm sure it varies tremendously. I mean, I, 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 I've said to people before, I have a friend who had MS and went off gluten and the MS was gone. Right. And there are other people who go off gluten with MS and it doesn't have any impact whatsoever. Right. Um, so everyone's different. So how, what, what is that range and, and how do you analyze and, and approach and how long, how long can that take? Right. So people know that because some people, it's like, Sometimes it's just a long process. So I'm just curious because you've, I know you've had a lot of success. So, right. I think, um, the minimum is three months. The maximum can be many years and it's dependent upon how many different pathways and systems are involved in the disease. So if I see a history and a physical exam and some initial lab testing that has one abnormality, such as a gluten sensitivity or a milk sensitivity in that first example, that can, that child can be better almost instantaneously. I mean, three months to get all the antibodies out of the system, et cetera. But if that child also has yeast overgrowth and mineral deficiencies and thyroid dysfunction and mitochondrial dysfunction, um, then the more systems that are affected, the longer it will take to improve all of those different areas. And then it, 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 it's sometimes, especially in children that I see at older ages who have had problems for many, many years or who have multiple problems with one uh, abnormality in detoxification on top of another, or one abnormality in the gut on top of another, then it may take several years to get to the bottom of it and really help them to be better. And and on uh, so on yeast, which I know keeps coming up everywhere now, it seems to be, I know when I was at Penn last year, that's their hottest area of research. Uh, Thank over, goodness. over, yeah. <laughs> I didn't believe in it when I was there, but this was, uh, well, this, this was the head of, uh, IBD at CHOP who yeah. said now for all autoimmune, they're all, they're all following the same path. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that incidence and how often you're seeing it in your practice and, and how you, and how the two steps of treating it, which I think, you know, one less invasive, one more drug oriented, but 
So I think that, that uh, you know, I sort of have a bent toward yeast because, uh, you know, my mentor, Sid Baker, was taught by Dr. Crook and Dr. Gallen and Dr. Bland. And so I have always looked for it. Um, and so when you're looking for it, you may find it a little bit more um, than if you don't really believe in it. So I would say... Um, at least 60% of the children that come in here have some problem with yeast. Um, and I can see that by their behavior. I often say to families, any behavior that you see a drunk do may be a yeasty behavior. So you can have belligerent drunks, you can have brain fog drunks, you can have silly inappropriate drunks. Any of those can be a yeasty behavior. Then I look at their exam. You know, at, well, also in their history, have they had thrush out of the infant period? Have they had uh, ringworm? Um, have they had yeast diaper rash out of the diaper wearing period of time? Have they had a lot of athlete's foot? You know, so I'll get that in the history. And then on the physical exam, looking for all of those. I'll do a woods lamp exam, which is a, an exam with a special light that can show up um, yeast on the, on the skin. And in all of those, I may find it. Um, and then I will look for it in testing. Now, one thing about yeast is, and why I think many traditional doctors don't believe in it or believe in finding it, is we tend to look for germs in a culture, like a stool culture. Well, often yeast can't be found that way um, for two reasons. One, sometimes it's an abnormal uh, way that you're reacting to a normal level of yeast. So you just can't process the normal levels of yeast we all have in our systems. And the second is yeast, especially if it's there for a long time, our bodies want to sequester it. So it may well be in a biofilm matrix sort of hidden away in a mucus layer. So hard to find on culture and also hard to treat. So I often will use a urine test looking at the metabolites of yeast, like a rabnitol, to see if there is yeast overgrowth. And I, again, won't use one of those, but look at if they have one of any of those, then yeast is present. So history, physical exam, or that kind of lab test. And then I'll treat it depending on the severity and how quickly a family might need or want to get that yeast treated. Um, and that child's ability to handle that, that quicker fix. So diflucan or an, uh, an antifungal medication, if I am sure it is yeast and I want to see that quick N of one clinical trial, I will use a medication like a systemic antifungal to treat that child and have a long discussion about that die off, that negative before the positive. And often I will see that in that child. Then I will move from that to what I call a biofilm protocol, which is using a combination of enzymes and usually herbal remedies to, to continue to treat and kill that yeast. Because I often use the analogy of yeast and other germs in the gut being the enemy army. And so initially, we may have to bring in our heavy artillery to sort of deplete the, the enemy troops. But we can't just do that and then leave. We have to follow that up with some sentries that are out there and continuing to treat, and that's the herbs. 
But the third piece of that, and what a lot of families have trouble with, especially in today's sad diet, the standard American diet, um, is uh, feeding the yeast. So if we're trying to kill the enemy, and yet we're sending in you know, food to them all the time, they're going to be a lot harder to kill. We have to start, stop feeding the enemy. So we have to take out the complex carbohydrates, the sugars, the desserts, the, the grandma treats in order to really kill that. And the more a family is willing to get on board and do all three of those facets, the faster we can get rid of it. How, you know, it's funny because I, I, before we started recording, I was saying my voice has been raspy. And as the last year and a half, I've been infinitely lower carb. Uh, I still cycle because I don't want to wind up in that there's not enough carbs to feed the good bacteria. Right. I'd love to starve the bad bacteria. How do you, any sense of how to talk about striking that balance? Right. I, I think um, in children, especially they need to have some carbohydrates for growth. And I think if we remove them 100% for longer than nine months, we're doing them a huge disservice. And even in the short term, there has to be some amount of carbohydrates from some vegetables and a modicum of fruits if other complex carbs, grains, etc., are taken out. So I usually cycle where I'm very strict for about three months, a little bit less strict for the next six months. And as long as I am killing the germs otherwise with either antimicrobial prescriptive agents or herbal agents, then I will allow some amount of grains in, um, in a, a, uh, uh, a cycling um, way, um, meaning that I'm also very conscious of when they're eating their proteins, when they're eating their oils, uh, and all other foods that they may have developed sensitivities to, you know, whether it be lectins or salicylates or, or phenols or et cetera, because of the, the disruption the gut has gone through. I mean, many of these sensitivities our kids have are because of the underlying inflammation from the germs or, or from an inflammatory condition with the gut that once that's taken care of, they won't have those other sensitivities in the future. Do you, do you break down kids into high histamine, low histamine? Or is that part of the way you look at it as well? I do look at that. Absolutely. Um, I think most of the kids initially, all, almost all of the kids I see have some amount of inflammation. And so most of them will have sensitivities to that. I look at it more later when I've gotten the bulk of their inflammation better, and yet they're still having problems. Then I will focus in, all right, let's look at the high versus low histamine. Let's look at the high versus low oxalates, those sort of things later, if they're not showing significant symptoms of that early on. And, and you mentioned lectins before, because that's become a big thing for me. And I had cycled pretty much off them since February of 16. And then this past winter, I was running a lot in the winter and all of a sudden my ankles started bothering me, but it was never swollen. It was never hurt. And I was cheating a lot 
little things, a few French fries here or there, little, but small quantities, but little things. And I found myself with food sensitivities. Again, I don't know how much of it's just low carb or how maybe if I just took lectins out all that time that I then became more sensitive when I reintroduced them. And you know, I'd love to understand that because I think, I think that pattern, I'm seeing that with other people I know. Um, and maybe just talk a little bit about how, how you recognize those patterns. Right. I, I, well, first of all, one of the things that's very important to me whenever a child or family comes back for their follow-up is we ask them for an update. And we're asking them for an update on their symptoms, but also an update on their sleep, their stools, and their diet. And so I need to know what changes. Oh, we're, we're not quite a hundred percent on what you told us to be. We've added this back in. And then they've also told me that the child's complaining of, of ankle pain every day. And the pediatrician says it's just growing pains, but I look at it and they've added legumes back in that they thought were okay. Well, okay, those two symptoms may well go together. Let's take those out again, email me in two weeks, and let me know if that symptom's gotten better. And that's how I know. I'm not going to do another food allergy profile or look at any other testing. We're just going to look at whether those symptoms get better with the change in diet or if they got worse because you changed it the other way. And that can be lectin, certainly, um, especially um, in our children that are on specific carbohydrates diets or our children on GAPS diets. That uh, The GAPS is gut and psychology syndrome diet, very similar diets. Um, very few of my kids are on the body ecology diet. It's just very hard to do in children. But if they're on any of those diets, they may be overdoing it with other foods that may be causing a new problem. So for instance, oxalates, which are very high in almonds. A lot of the specific carbohydrate diet is nut-based. So you're making carbohydrates out of nut flour and you're having almond milk rather than your regular milk. Well, you may now develop problems with oxalates. So it's, it, it's something that we have to tweak. And that's why having frequent reinforcements, working with dietitians as I do. I have a wonderful dietitian here in the office who helps me look at the details um, that I may miss. One little caveat I'll, I'll give you how we met. I had a young boy who I was sure the gluten-free diet was going to make a difference for him. Absolutely 100% positive. And the family was 100% with it for three months and not a change in behavior whatsoever. And, um, you know, I was still a little bit new into the integrative world and a little bit more in my traditional hat of I've got to be right. Um, and, uh, um, so I asked Vicki to look at the diet, um, the dietitian I work with, and it was the gum that was being used as a reinforcer in OT that had gluten in it that was making the difference. And once we took that gum out within a week, it was a new kid. And so being that detailed oriented and looking at the diet and knowing exactly what a child is taking can be really important to be able to make that difference. Um, so a little selfishly on Lyme, um, okay. just, uh, you know, I mean, you can, I guess you'll probably be retracing some of what, what we've done, but 
What what is your approach to that? Because that just seems to be everywhere. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not of the camp that Lyme causes autism or autism is Lyme. Um, I think they're overlapping circles, sort of in that Venn diagram. So there are some children that have both. The same with pans and, and even pandas. You know, Lyme can be a part of that. But whenever a child comes in with neurologic symptoms, whether it be anxiety, a tick disorder, uh, OCD, um, or, or even in the severe end of the spectrum autism, then I look for something else in the history or the physical exam that makes me think of Lyme besides just living in this area of the country where it's so prevalent. So I will look at history of joint problems or sleep problems or, um, uh, rashes, um, and not just the typical Lyme rash, that bullseye rash, but stretch marks without changes in, in, uh, weight. Um, I'll, I'll look for any of those other little symptoms. And if I have anything else, then I will follow that up with good testing. Um, one of the things I often do is a culture for Lyme. If a child has not been on any herbs or antibiotics in the previous six weeks, because often that will capture, um, children that have otherwise been missed on typical testing. I will usually, as long as family finances allow, um, do some of the more specialty testing, which are the gold standards for testing for Lyme. Um, and if not, then I will do um, some of the, the more uh, extended Western blots from traditional labs where I may capture more of the bands of Lyme uh, than in a typical minimal Western blot. Um, and I'll use my own take on that test, not what the lab says as to whether I would diagnose the Lyme for, for instance, an IgM Western blot, meaning a child has acute Lyme, um, it, from a traditional lab, they have to have three bands for it to be called Lyme. If they have one or two of the most significant ones, I may well call it Lyme and treat it as such. Again, in my N of one, looking what happens when I treat. Well, that child that had absolutely no joint symptoms now all of a sudden has joint symptoms when I started to treat, we're on the right track because that's part of that Herxheimer's reaction. They'll get worse before they get better. I'll give you an example. I had a young woman, uh, 17 come in, um, and she had called me, I knew her, um, prior to this and she had called me and said, I have flu like symptoms. I, I, um, I'm just feeling really under the weather. It's not going away. I don't know what else is going on. I asked her all the other symptoms. She had nothing. I said, come in and see me. By the time she got here from the time she left home, she had developed a rash that she hadn't had. So I didn't need to do any testing to start treating her. When I started treating her with one antibiotic, her symptoms were so severe, she had to go to the hospital to get pain, IV pain medicine to, to treat the pain, the joint and, and bone pain she was having just with 12 hours of antibiotics. That kid, there was no question whatsoever that Lyme was the diagnosis. 
we then went on to find that she had not only Lyme, but she had several co-infections, uh, other tick-borne diseases that can go along with the traditional Borrelia burgdorferi. So that's probably why her symptoms were so severe, because she ended up having six co-infections in addition to the Lyme. And, you know, with each thing we added, she had another Herxheimer's reaction, another worsening before she got better. And still three months later, every time we add something, because we have to add things slowly to let her get over the negative, she gets a negative before it turns positive. And, and that's probably one of the reasons this type of medicine doesn't work for everybody because you have to stick through the negatives to get to the positives. And, um, some people don't have the wherewithal to do that, the, the guts to do it. Um, I, and, and unfortunately some of us, and maybe even sometimes me, um, but I tend to talk a lot. So I end up getting it all in. Don't reinforce to the families that these negatives can happen. And so when they do, they think, oh, that doctor didn't know what they were talking about because I got worse rather than better. Um, and that, you know, that goes back to that doctor is teacher. And that's part of what we have to teach as we, we treat. And in, in the way you practice, you mentioned antibiotics, but so do you typically use antibiotics only if you see a, a Lyme or similar infection at the beginning and is it, are they less effective over time or how do you, how do you see that? Um, Correct. So if I think it's an acute illness, I will almost always use antibiotics because I know I can help them more quickly in that way and avoid the more chronic Lyme. Um, otherwise, if it's already in its chronic phase, usually the children have multiple germs, not just Lyme or even the Lyme co-infections, but they also have yeast and viruses and other bacteria. And then I will usually use an herbal protocol because it, it will get more of the, the plethora of germs the child is dealing with. And also many of the herbals are very good anti-inflammatories. So where I can get multiple germs with one group of herbs rather than one germ with multiple antibiotics, I'll, I'll do that. So it's, it's a judgment call. And it's also what I think the child will take. You know, um, uh, my own son, for instance, hopefully he's not listening to this podcast, but my own son, for instance, who was away at school, would not take 20 different herbs and, and liquids to boot. Um, so he went on pills of antibiotics. Um, and uh, so you have to know where that family is too and where that child is as to what they can digest and what they can take. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, uh, doing the, the herbal protocol in our house is... <laughs> It's my, my, my boys are pretty good about it. Um, but every once in a while it is a, a giant pain. 
Yep. Uh, and one went off to camp and we sent him with the herbs and I had to walk in and uh, hand it. And the nurse there was fantastic and they mixed all the things. Right. Um, but it, it's not, it can't be for everyone. Right. Uh, in terms, just logistically, purely logistically speaking, how, how, how do you see your practice uh, evolving in terms of the tests, the things you're seeing being presented to you? And what do you like? How do you see it evolving? Or you know, no, no, well, let's say let's take a step back. How has it evolved in the last ten years? And how do you see that? Do you see it evolving faster based on the new tests coming, or the new op- options or things that you're hearing about? Well, I, I think first of all, um, I'm always learning, um, whether it be through the think tanks I mentioned or the other groups that I'm involved with. Medical Academy of Pediatric Special Needs, the new pediatric arm of IFM, the Institute for Functional Medicine, um, or, or even some of the parent groups like TACA. As I said, I learn a lot from parents. Um, I, where my practice has evolved in the last 10 years is it's gone from mainly just autism, where 80% of my practice was autism to now probably only 30% is autism. And the rest is other autoimmune neurodevelopmental or chronic illnesses, whether it be Lyme, PANS, PANDAS, um, severe allergies, uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, Because I think more and more people are looking outside of traditional medicine Um, to help their children. And because of what I went through with my own son, um, I have developed a particular particular expertise in PANS and PANDAS. Um, And I think the research in that area is also helping my work in children with autism because autism, like those diseases, like Lyme, are autoimmune diseases where the immune dysregulation is affecting the brain. And I think that's where the research is going, where we're learning more and more about how that immune system is really impacting our neurologic system, probably how all mental and neurologic disorders are immune disorders and inflammation. And the more testing we can have to show that rather than just suppose it, will help us to reach more and more people and help us to use not only medications and supplements, but also diet to treat that inflammation and, and bring it down and help these kids to get better. So a a little bit more on diet, because it's one thing to say, get rid of the whites and the starches and control yeast or, but, um, do you make recommendations on keeping organic in the house or, you know, pesticides, et cetera? Can you talk a little bit about that? So I look at all of that. And also I'm a part of a group called the Neurologic Health Foundation, which is about how to prevent neurodevelopmental diseases before mom even gets pregnant. So we are there speaking very strongly about staying as organic as possible, at least the dirty dozen 
um, and the Clean 15 and looking at, at um, for instance, EWG.org, which is the Environmental Working Group. You can find this information there or the Neurologic Health Foundation. You can find this information there. Avoiding GMOs avoiding pesticide-laden foods, especially those in the dirty dozen, um, and increasing your anti-inflammatory foods, which is really a diet that increases natural proteins um, uh, and good vegetables, uh, highly colored vegetables and fruits, um, as well as good oils. Um, and I think that's something that we push a lot, you know, particularly in our pregnant moms or soon to be pregnant moms is really getting good oils in, um, oils that have a long shelf life are, are very light. So your extra virgin organic olive oils, your macadamia nut oils, your coconut oils being much better, um, than some of your canola oils, et cetera. Um, so really educating the moms very early on in how to do that and then getting them early breastfeeding because that's a big, big, um, promoter of good immunity, um, vaginal deliveries with the increase in C-sections and the decrease in breastfeeding, we've seen a big increase in autoimmune diseases. Um, and then getting them to start our kids on good first foods. What's the typical first food for babies? Rice, rice cereal. We're starting kids on carbs. If instead their first food were avocados and we were pushing vegetables and proteins in that first few months that we start foods, our, our babies would be much healthier than if we're doing carbs and fruits first. Yeah, no more applesauce to start. Right, right. Especially that with, with arsenic and, and <laughs> a lot of applesauce and rice has arsenic in it. So I've probably, when I was macrobiotic, probably had enough rice to last a lifetime. Yep. But so um, take your selenium. <laughs> I do. And I take NAC and vitamin C and all the precursors to glutathione yeah. and do. Um, so, uh, what 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 other protocol? What what are the areas of how you practice? Is there anything that we haven't touched on that that you think is well, important? Well, we we didn't really talk about the mitochondria much, and that is a big one. You know, when you talk about mitochondrial disease, that's very different from mitochondrial dysfunction. So, mitochondrial disease probably only four to maybe seven percent of children with autism have that, but dysfunction, it's more like at least seventy percent maybe up to 80 some percent. And mitochondrial dysfunction, I always liken it to an engine that's not working as well. So think about your car engine. It can either be sputtering and a lot of stops and starts, or it can be revving um, unwarranted at a stoplight. Either one of those can be mitochondrial dysfunction. So the mitochondria, the energy parts of each of our cell, and it's in every cell of our, of our bodies. So basically any problem can be a mitochondrial dysfunction. We think particularly of kids with constipation, with low tone, with speech delays, with regression after anesthesia or an illness, um, as mitochondrial dysfunction. But that is something we look at with any of those things in the history or physical exam, 
um, we look at mitochondrial dysfunction. And that is something we are, are pretty quick to treat. And one of the interventions that I may add in that first month is something like CoQ10 in a child that has mitochondrial dysfunction. Because CoQ10 in its very best form, and, and let me back up a little bit, brand is very important. They're, not all supplements are created equal. And to say, go and get the over-the-counter CoQ10 versus the high-quality CoQ10 that the mitochondrial disease doctors use is like night and day. So you, it's better to invest in the high quality, may cost a little bit more money, but it'll get you a lot more bang for your buck. So anyway, those are all things we do. And, and when you talk about how things are evolving, um, there's excellent research from Bob Navio at UC San Diego looking at the metabolomics and the mitochondrial dysfunction of many of our kids. And one of the things that he talks about and has shown that many of our children, particularly with autism, have is a persistent cell danger response. And that's going back to that army. Um, when you or I get uh, exposed to a virus or a chemical, we put our cells, our mitochondria, put out a cell danger response. And that's where we set out cytokines and mitokines, those army sentries to fight that virus or get rid of that chemical. And when that virus is treated or that chemical exposure goes away, the sentries, the cytokines and mitokines retreat. But what he has shown through good research is that in children with autism, those cytokines are persistent. They don't retreat. And there's a persistent cell danger response. And so what does that mean? Well, think again about the enemy um, example. If you always feel like you're at war and your sentries are always out there, you're always in a state of heightened alert. So you get that hyper alert look, that deer in the headlights look, which many of our children with autism have. What else do you do if you're at war? Well, you close down your borders. You close down your cell-to-cell -cell communication. You socially withdrawal. You, you have uh, speech delays or dyspraxia or apraxia. Um, and, and each of those symptoms of autism we see can be well explained by a persistent cell danger response. And he's shown in mice models that antipurinergic therapy, um, a therapy that flips that switch and makes that, turns off that persistent cell danger response can also turn off the symptoms of autism. And this is in a mouse model that's 30 years equivalent to a 30 year old with autism. It's in a mouse model equivalent to a genetic uh, example of autism and an environmental model of autism. So that is going to be a big game changer as the research in children um, changes uh, and develops. Um, but right now we can look at those mitochondria. We can look at that, uh, uh, dysfunction in our kids and treat it, um, effectively and, and make a big difference. And so is there a drug that does that, that does that that's safe for human that's considered safe for humans right now? We have some supplements that help. But the drug that, that Bob Navio is researching, and you can find all this information on our website and certainly on his website, is called Suramin. 
which is a drug in, in logarithmically lower uh, dosages, has, uh, is used um, to, to treat autism. But what it's used for in logarithmically greater dosages is African sleeping sickness. So only about three to 4,000 dosages a year. And he looked at 4,000 different medications and herbs before he found this one that may well flip the switch. Now, the studies in children is very preliminary. Five got Suramin, five got placebo. But the differences, both metabolically in the, the testing, as well as in what those children showed, were drastically different. Um, so the next phase of research will be coming soon and we'll know even more. And hopefully after that, it will then become available to our, our children with mitochondrial dysfunction and autism. And is that, and, and that drug is out there, has been out there a long time for other purposes. Right. But it's not available for a physician to write a prescription for now. Ah, okay. Yeah. It, it's amazing to me how many drugs were developed 30, 50 years ago right. that are being repurposed. We, I, I, I would argue certainly as in, for, in terms of return on investment and the amount of money we spend every year overall in drug development, there's been a very low return for decades. Right. Um, but it, it brings up another excellent point, which is we can use other diseases as models to how a drug or an herb or a supplement may help our children. So I do this with mitochondrial dysfunction. We use our mitochondrial disease children to help us know how to, how to help other children not as affected on the spectrum, but people with Alzheimer's have a lot of things in common with our children with autism, people with Parkinson's, people with MS and auto, other autoimmune diseases. So drugs that may have helped those people with those diseases may also well help our children in off-label usage. And most of the drugs we use in, in autism are off-label usages. Um, hmm. You know, the only ones that are, that are, uh, on label use, uh, are antipsychotics. So. <laughs> and, um, couple, couple little things about in terms of the way you practice. And we, and we talked about it, but I just want to kind of summarize it is, is that, you know, you, you may test or you, and, and you may test in a lab or you may test in your physical test, but how often do you kind of shift? And I don't mean necessarily change course, but based on the feedback, based on what's happening, you think one thing's going to happen. There's a humility that I think comes with time, um, which you've already alluded to, but how often do you find yourself shifting based on feedback? I mean, it's pretty much, there's some, uh, some change every time people check in some, or is it, uh, you know, how often do people just, nope, we nailed it or. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. And there's almost always a shift, um, and a learning and a evolving. Now, some of that may be, um, look, I thought you had yeast overgrowth. You absolutely do. But now I found you also have clostridial overgrowth or you also have, uh, bad bacteria. So it's layers. And many of the children I take care of, you know, people use the analogy of an onion and we're peeling back the layers of the onion. That just makes me cry. I think of it more like gifts. 
And, and so I, <laughs> I, and a gift that may be wrapped in nine layers of wrapping paper. And so I look at it, at it more of, okay, we've got that layer of wrapping paper off. Now we see the next layer and we got to go to that. So it's not so much a shift to a whole different gift. It's just that evolves as you unwrap what was much more prominent to the more subtle defects that you may not have noticed or that, that may not have been pro as prominent as you unwrap that gift. But keep in mind to all the, the parents and teachers and practitioners that that child, wherever they are, is a gift. And part of helping that child to get better is to see them as a gift at every stage rather than just something that needs to be fixed. Because that, I, I think as traditional physicians, we often anoint our patients with what we prescribe and this will get you fixed or better. But if instead we empower the child and the family to get better, the, the long reaching and long term positive effects can be much greater because that, that, there's so much that can be said about the power of positive thinking, um, and the power of healing, um, in, in wanting to, to join into that relationship. I, kid I had not too long ago, probably seen 15, 20 physicians. And she came in with a puss on her face that, you know, I, the parents were sure she wasn't going to get over and I was never going to do anything to help her. And just listening and hearing that she didn't want to tell me the specifics of what her headaches felt like. And she just said, the horrible pounding every moment of the day and anything else you ask me is just irrelevant. Listening to that and hearing that and saying, okay, I'm not going to ask her any more of that helped her to allow me to then say, okay, I've got these three things. This is all I want you to try for the next month while we're waiting for the test to come back. Whether it was that what I prescribed actually helped or that what she said to me at the end of the two hours, which was, you're the first doctor I've ever met that I've liked. Which one of those doesn't really matter. When she came back a month later, it was the first time she had ever felt better in six years. And so that, that interaction may have been as important as the B12 or NAC or, or diet change that I gave her. Well, so. you, you also listened. And I, I remember when I was still in college and one of my old fraternity brothers friends came who was older came back to visit and he's uh, and he was he was interviewing now as a from the business side and he said the best interviews are where the person interviewing you does all the talking so, <laughs> so it's great because you actually listened um so i i know we're we're, we're coming to to a close time wise and and so i so i did want to just talk about your um uh your uh, success rates and and how you measure outcomes um, and and where you are in that because what what I've found with my own gut issues over the years was there was no expectation of an outcome right it's just management right and I don't believe you function that way no 
So I think, first of all, um, we tell people very early on if we don't think we can help. Um, for instance, in the, the children with autism, um, there are a percentage, this is a genetic disease. And in, in, in my perspective, autism, uh, genetics uh, loads the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. So for 90% of the kids, there are environmental triggers that we can impact. But for 10%, there really aren't. And it's just a genetic illness. And if through history and physical exam and test results in those first three months and trialing some of the big interventions, I see absolutely nothing. I will say to the family, don't take out a second mortgage on me and, and use your money to invest in therapy and, and things like that. And if there's anything you want to try that I think is safe because it helped your neighbor or you read about it, I will try it with you and I will give you the percentages that I think it may help your child. Um, but that's about 10% of the kids that we really don't have any impact on. There may be another 10% that we don't and maybe 10 to 20% that we don't have an impact on because they don't follow up. Either we didn't do a good enough job telling them about, telling them about the bad good and they gave up or they have too many obstacles within their home or financially or the child and they don't return, um, after even the first couple of visits. Um, so, and we have these numbers, we've looked at it because of the, the think tank and the autism research group that we've been involved in. We've been asked to look at this repeatedly. So we've looked at our actual percentages. Um, we've reported on them. Um, so about 20%, no change. I think 10% of that are genetic and 10% of that are, are giving up for whatever reason. I think there are 30% of those kids that, that we, um, that recover, um, 100%. They may be a little bit quirky, but they recover. Um, there are 30% that moderately improve over top of what therapy could do. Um, I, so that they're, um, not just much more available to therapy, but they've made leaps and bounds gains, but they're still on the spectrum. And then about 20, uh, percent, uh, that have mild improvements. And those are kids that are just more available to th for therapy. We've treated their constipation. We've gotten them healthier. Um, we, we've gotten them more alert, but really not any more changes than that. And that's just in the autism population. Now in the pans and pandas population, that depends more on how quickly we see them um, and how many germs are involved. But of those kids, we'll get at least 60% better um, and maybe up to 70%. Um, and that really depends on the type of germ that's involved and how quickly they get in to see me, which is why we're trying to decrease the length of our waiting list and bringing on more practitioners, et cetera. Um, in the Lyme population, that's very similar to the pans and pandas in depending on how many germs are involved, how many of the co-infections, how long the child has had it. And that's often hard to, to delineate, um, whether it was gestational or not. Um, but again, that can well be in that 60 to 70% um, grouping. 
And it, how much of this before puberty, Matt, you know, the, the difference, what, does that have a significant impact? I would say as a pediatrician, most of the children I see are either around puberty or younger. Um, the children that would, that are older, the percentages do go down. Um, but, but the large majority of kids we're seeing are less than, um, 13, 14. Um, so those numbers are, are mainly based on that group, but I've had 17 year olds that are, have one word utterances and are stuck in their homes all day with huge sensory overload. And we've added an intervention and they go to Disney world and they're talking in reciprocal phrases with their family. So it, it does happen. It, the percentages are just lower. And, and what about on the other ADHD and other things? I assume it's probably even higher if they follow through. Right. Correct. <laughs> Correct. But the problem there is the follow through. Yeah. Because, well, I can take this stimulant medication and that's one pill and I feel better versus changing my diet and taking these 10 supplements and then I feel better. Uh, I'm 14. Which one am I going to do? Yeah. So that's where some of the fall off may get greater and we don't see as much an improvement in what we do because the kid's not on board. Got it. Um, well, I, I thank you. What I'm, what I'm going to do uh, uh, before we post this is uh, when we do the show notes, we'll um, list a lot of the different uh, entities that you are a part of or that you recommend and then send that back to you maybe to edit um, or, or, and I know some of them are up on your website as well, and we'll get a complete list for everyone. Um, because I want, you know, this audience here is, is, and, and what we're gearing for is not just patients, but practitioners, uh, that are either open-minded or in smaller markets who aren't as exposed uh, that we hope to get this out to. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I hope, uh, Hope there's more to talk about in the future, and I, I really appreciate your time. And uh, and and so far, my personal experience has been wonderful. Um, and uh, would would love to you know uh, uh, find a way to make your knowledge uh, increasingly available to those that aren't there yet. One one thing on the success rates: what what is the variation of your success rates versus what you see generally in standard of care? I, I did forget to ask that one question without, without criticizing the right. numbers that you see published by the government or that you see elsewhere. I'm not asking you to criticize your fellow, your, your peers, but you're obviously doing this because you think it's better. I think in children with autism, often, um, the families are left with a diagnosis and no help, hope and no help. Um, and so especially in the children with moderate to severe autism, I think those families are given their 0% chance of recovery and our percentages go, whether you're on the mild end, the moderate or the severe end, if we can find those metabolic immune gastrointestinal problems and, and correct them. So I think that, that that's where I, I reach out the greatest. Um, same with pans, pandas, and Lyme. You know, uh, I think a lot of my more traditional colleagues don't want to even think it exists. So don't 
treat it with the necessary antibiotics or herbs that would help that kid to get better. So they're not seeing 60 to 70% improvement because they're not using those. So my hope would be they look at something like this and then go to the website for New England pans or for eyelads for Lyme or whatever, and find another way to look at these children and help them to get better. Wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for yours. And, Appreciate uh, you doing this. Fred, thanks for keeping us company. He barely moved. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. Um, and, uh, and thank you. Thanks.